Today, on the Surgical Fiction Podcast, Chapter 1 of Brandon Dragon's exceptional literary novel, The Wages of Grace. The book is available, if not right now, then very shortly, from Audible. Perhaps what I love best about narrating this book is the beautiful writing. There is a beautiful story, but for it to really shine, and this shines mightily, one has to have the words to polish that shine. So often we read a book and can say it was good, but in retrospect it could have been so much better. That better comes in the arrangement and use of words on the page to not just tell a story, but to sing it to us. Such books may have horrendous content, Cormac McCarthy's brilliant but horrifying novel Blood Meridian or The Evening Redness in the West is one such example. But the writing transcends the subject matter and sings to us. Every word transports us. We feel the highs and lows, the agony and the passion, the goodness and the badness of every instant. The author, through their writing, does not just carry us along, they embrace us. The unwritten pact between author and reader wherein the reader agrees to come along for the ride, and the author promises that ride will be not only worth the reader's time and effort, it will be satisfying as well, is fully realized in such books. I thought The Wages of Grace was quite well written and fully satisfying. There was nothing that rang as false. Thierry's world was fully realized. It's a lovely book, and ultimately a love story between a man and, well, I'll let the reader... Listener, decide. And now, Chapter 1 of The Wages of Grace by Brandon Dragon. A special presentation of the Surgical Fiction Podcast. 1. He could taste salt on his tongue as the waves broke around him. Whether the gentle flavor lingered because of the misty spray or the tender touch of her lips, he could not be sure. He sat wrapped in a wool blanket, the sun bright through hazy clouds, the ocean pulsing in perfect rhythm. His feet planted in the cold, wet sand. He had never been more happy. She floated effortlessly over the waves, as far as the moon and as close as his heartbeat. Her soft, rosy lips nearly touched his ear as he gently bit his bottom lip. She softly whispered his name. Her beauty was ravishing, and she didn't even know it. Delicate strands of perfect ash-brown hair fell smoothly on her bare, freckled shoulders. He would have tied a millstone around his neck and plunged himself into the sea for just one more kiss. In the next instant, there were rocks below, jagged and sharp. He stood forty feet above on the edge of the precipice, while the rough sea crashed spectacularly against the boulders below. Birds picked ruthlessly at the carcasses of dead fish, unwilling to leave them mercifully to their eternal rest. The tips of the rocks gleamed in the gray sunlight, the raging sea roaring against them deafeningly. He closed his eyes and imagined flinging himself toward them, but he knew from previous experience that he would only wake again in his bed, dejected but unharmed. He recoiled in surprise when he heard his name again. He looked up and saw her in the distance, flowing white dress whipping in the wind. She stood erect at sea, his very own Venus beckoning him. Tears streamed down his wind-beaten face as he stretched his arms toward her, but the distance between them was impassable. His old muscles cramped with longing, longing for just one more touch, one more embrace, one more tender word. 
The rain began to fall heavily, as it always did, and the wind began to howl, as he was certain it would, and he knew that once more he had to say goodbye. Too great, however, was the disquiet of his soul to utter mere words. Slowly, silently, she began to sink. He watched for the thousandth time in horror, unable to intervene. He also knew that she would return the following night, and that the aching in his soul would never dissipate, would never relent. It has been said that time heals all wounds, but this is untrue. Some wounds only turn gangrenous with time. There was unremitting sorrow in the subconscious nightly ritual, but there was also the numbing consolation that, at least he had seen her again, in all her glory. His eyelids fluttered rapidly in the dark as his mind's eye watched her calmly submerged in the black, foaming sea. He told her that he loved her, and that was all. She sank to her waist, her breasts, her neck, her nose, and her eyes without panic, without struggle or fear. Then he could see her no more. Her name was Hope. September 3rd, 1990 the sun rose gently through the clearing that our wise sage knew as his home. The trees stood tall and strong, full of foliage and confidence in their old age. The woods were already alive, an endless array of creatures stirring, some waking from a warm night's slumber, some seeking repose after a warm night's hunt. After all, there is nothing quite as comforting as going to bed with a full stomach. A long, slender cat nimbly abandoned the woods and entered the clearing. He was mostly black, but had white markings on his underside and some patches of white on his chin and face. He had already eaten. His name was Duke. Having already eaten, however, would not dissuade him from walking through the tall grass near the tree line, then the freshly mowed grass near the long, winding gravel driveway, up the wooden steps and through the hole in the screen that the old man had cut for him. Duke did this for several reasons. First, the old man would be waking soon and would naturally come to feed the cat on the back porch, as he had done every morning since the cat could remember. His second reason was simply the weather. It was going to be hot and sunny, yet again, and he knew that, aside from the creek down by the old barn, the back porch was the best place to catch a breeze and a nap. Inside the century-old farmhouse, on the second floor, a right turn and a brief walk up the hall from the stairway, Thierry LaRoque laid awake in bed, mesmerized by the rhythmic pulsing of the ceiling fan. If he stared at the white paint on the ceiling through the blades as they silently whirled, it almost appeared that they changed direction. He knew this was an optical illusion, but would try it several times each summer morning, almost as if to reassure himself that the laws of physics and nature were still in effect after another night. He turned to the analog clock radio in the worn nightstand beside the bed. It was 6.04 a.m., he had slept in. Retirement, however, affords such simple luxuries as this to those lucky enough to see it. He didn't have anywhere to go or anything particularly pressing to do that day, aside from lunch with the judge and a quick run to the supermarket. But nevertheless, after all those years of waking up at 5.30 sharp, he couldn't help but feel a pang of guilt for wasting part of the daylight and sleep. He rose quietly and sat on the edge of the bed, stretching his arms toward the sky. He stood up and checked on his old friend who slept quietly behind the clock radio next to an antique copy of The Count of Monte Cristo and thanked God that still another night had passed without cause to use it. 
He put on his jeans from the night before, holstered that very handgun to his belt, and simultaneously prayed that this day would too pass without cause to use it. He walked slowly and wearily to the bathroom at the end of the hall, brushed his teeth, and sprayed his deodorant on. He then got about the business of shaving. Thierry and shaving had never quite had an amicable relationship, but he still did it every morning. He couldn't help but think that in some ways the act of shaving his face was a lot like the act of life itself. Every morning, new opportunities would arise, new passions and energies would spring to life, and every morning, for one reason or another, he would shave them back to the skin. And there they were, covered in lather, clinging to the sides of the white porcelain sink as if begging not to be rinsed down and forgotten. They knew as well as the man did that there would be more of them to deal with tomorrow morning and that the only thing truly gained by the process was sore skin. Back to the bedroom he went to select a clean shirt from the closet and down the stairs to start coffee and breakfast. The eggs would be fried in butter, the sausage would be spicy, the berries would be fresh, and the coffee would be black. That was the way it was every morning, and while there were endless other possibilities for breakfast, Thierry preferred this combination to any other. The man's border collie, Shepherd Mix, could still be heard snoring contently under the big oak desk in the library, but as soon as the cast-iron skillet hit the stove, Useless, who was actually quite the contrary despite his name, sprung to life. He raced into the living room, through the eat-in portion of the kitchen, and slid across the tiled floor until he bumped clumsily into the back of the man's legs as he stood over the stove. Well, good morning there, Thierry laughed as he regained his balance. I see you're up and ready to go. The canine sneezed. Bless you, the man replied. You were in quite a heavy sleep when I came downstairs, weren't you? The dog tilted his head, his large pink tongue dangling from one corner of his mouth. What were you dreaming about so contently, huh? Useless straightened his face and snorted. The man chuckled and threw the dog a chunk of sausage which was caught midair and consumed in one motion. Terry then made his way with his plate and coffee mug to the back door and out onto the porch. Useless was hardly a step behind him. Once they reached the porch, however, the dog immediately began his search for the cat, who, as previously mentioned, was also on the porch at this time every day. The two creatures got along as best they could, and by way of greeting every morning, Useless would quickly and clumsily sniff the cat's underbelly. It could be counted on that Duke would tolerate this behavior for precisely four seconds, and would then let out a guttural growl that would end up as a low, elongated hiss. Such a simple warning was always good enough for Useless, who would then back off and collapse at the man's feet. Thierry rocked back and forth, sipping his coffee and taking in another brilliant sunrise. The rays of the sun were already quite warm. It had been a sweltering summer, and there was almost nothing that the old man disliked more than heat and humidity. How, he asked himself, did he end up then in Middle Tennessee? It must have been the music. He loved the area, however. It was, after all, a wonderful place to live. Nashville, a growing and friendly city, was a mere twenty miles to his west, as the crow flies, and the town where he had made a living for many years was also pleasant and rapidly expanding. He lived another five miles or so to the northwest of the town. Thierry was fortunate enough to own a couple hundred acres of woods, streams, and raw, untouched land, some of which gently hugged the Cumberland River to his north. In the middle of all this natural beauty and ruggedness, there was the small clearing described earlier where Thierry's humble home sat. 
The clearing was no bigger than three or four acres and housed not only the main farmhouse, but also a large mechanics garage, a couple storehouses, an underground storm shelter, and an old Civil War era barn, which sat dilapidated and in much the same condition as it had been when Thierry came into possession of the estate some time earlier. Aside from the weather, he felt that Tennessee offered everything a man could hope for low taxes, cheap land, and friendly people, and he happened to be a proponent of all three. He ate breakfast slowly and enjoyed the weather as long as he could. Duke and Useless were both asleep by the time he finished. After a couple hours of tinkering with his truck and moving some tools around in the garage, Terry returned to the old farmhouse, showered in the bathroom on the second floor, and dressed again for his trip to town. He climbed in his old, steady Ford truck and began the slow, winding journey through the woods that surrounded his property. His driveway was almost a half-mile long, curling tightly around trees and through the dense summer brush. The gravel was, in some places, completely overtaken by grass and weeds, and in some places closer to the creek by Spanish moss. After a few moments, he was at the exit of his property, a small opening in the forest that would hardly be recognized as a driveway by someone passing by. Thierry preferred it this way. In hardly no time, he was in the center of town, past the old brick courthouse with the granite steps and marble columns, and parked conveniently on the street outside of Warren's restaurant on the town square. The air conditioning in his Ford always ran efficiently and freezing cold, and the old man regretted having to leave the truck at all. Inside Warren's, he was greeted by the effervescent Nicole Burns, the 17-year-old daughter of Warren Burns, the restaurant's proprietor. She practically ran to Thierry and embraced him like a child with her grandfather. Being 15 minutes before 12, the restaurant had only a couple other patrons, neither of which Thierry recognized, but he did feel them glance over at him as he was trapped in Nicole's death grip of a hug. She finally let go. Where have you been? She asked, as if he had at some point suddenly and without warning disappeared. Retired, darling, he replied tenderly. That's no excuse she said loudly in her perfectly charming Tennessee drawl. She slapped his shoulder playfully. I know, I know, but shouldn't you be in school? I was. I'm senior now, and my last class ends at 11, she answered proudly. I see. He began to reply, but was cut short by the emergence of her father from the kitchen. Hey, rascal, he shouted excitedly. I thought I heard your voice. It's been forever. The two men warmly shook hands and embraced quickly and with strong pats on the backs, as men do. I know. Your sweet waitress was just reminding me that it's been all of, what, three weeks since I've been in for a good meal? Has it only been three weeks? Warren replied in his own thick accent. It feels like it's been a lifetime. After all, you were in here practically every day for ten years. I guess when you're used to seeing someone every day, it feels like forever when all of a sudden they're not around as much anymore. Yes, I apologize, Terry sincerely replied, placing his right hand over his heart for dramatic embellishment. I promise to visit more often than I have. You better, Nicole replied in a good-humored yet serious tone while pointing her slender finger at him like a mother warning a child of the consequences of his behavior. Yes, ma'am, Terry quickly replied as his eyebrows shot up. He glanced over at her father who shook his head in a mixture of pride and fascination. So what'll it be? she asked, reverting back to waitress mode. Well, I'm meeting the judge, but drinks would be lovely. Sweet tea for the judge, unsweet for me. She rolled her eyes sarcastically. You're such a Yankee, 
she muttered playfully as she turned back towards the kitchen. On the way, she stopped by the table of their other guests to check in. The patron and the owner sat at a table for two by the front window, which overlooked the quietly bustling square. You did a great job, Thierry commented. Thank you, he answered with a quick glance toward the heavens. By the grace of God. Yes, and I must say, having been a hermit for a few months now, it's refreshing to see her again. Warren smiled warmly. Well, I gotta get back to the kitchen, but it was so good to see you. Please stop in more often. If not for me, then for Nicole. She misses you a lot. I'll make certain I do that. Here's on the house today, by the way. You don't have to do that. Just come by and see us more often, okay? Thank you, I sure will. At that moment, Nicole returned from the kitchen with the tea. She walked almost silently with a natant inadvertent elegance. The two men looked up at her and smiled. What are you two talking about? She asked accusingly as she put the drinks on the table. You, her father said playfully. She stuck her tongue out at him. You're on the clock. Get back to work, she ordered teasingly. Warren stood up quickly and saluted. He shook Thierry's hand firmly and walked off to the kitchen chuckling. So, darling, what have you been up to these last few months? Well, Nicole said slowly and blushed a little. I'm seeing a boy. You are, are you? Yes, his name's Kevin. She slipped into the seat across from Thierry that her father had recently vacated. Kevin, huh? Thierry pondered. Do I know him? Probably not, she replied slowly. Well, tell me about him. The pace of her words picked up eagerly. Well, he's really cute and really tall and really strong. Strong in what way, my dear? Strength has a lot of different applications. Well, he's a star quarterback for the Tigers, and there's a lot of talk about him playing college ball for the Vols, too. He's that good. Okay, so strong in the athletic sense. That's wonderful. What's he like? He's popular, really funny and outgoing, and he's really cute. Her sparkling brown eyes beamed with girlish excitement as she raved about her new beau. Yes, you mentioned the cute part earlier, Tierra quipped. How long have you been seeing this boy? About a month. And how has he treated you so far? Very well. He's taken me out a few times, and I've had a lot of fun. He really makes me laugh a lot. And are you being a good girl with this new boy? She clicked her tongue against her top row of teeth and censure. I can't believe you would even ask that, Mr. Terry. She reproached him while mispronouncing his name, as many Southerners did. Terry was used to it by this point, although he wasn't particularly fond of the name Terry. Well, sweetheart, you're growing up, and I thought it would be unacceptable for me not to ask, given our relationship over these many years. I know, and I appreciate it, and yes, we are very close, and always will be she said, taking his hand in hers gently. And I've been very proud of him because he hasn't tried anything aside from just a peck on the cheek so far. And believe me, being a star athlete and so cute and all, he's done a lot of things with a lot of girls. But he knows where I stand. And like I said, he's been a perfect gentleman so far. Well, good, my dear. I'm glad to hear it, he said as he placed his other hand on top of hers gently. You're very mature. Oh, I know she said seriously and then stuck her tongue out at him. At that moment, the bell rang as the door opened and the judge walked in suddenly. He was a short, pudgy man, and on this day he wore a short-sleeved white dress shirt with a red tie and black slacks. He was sweating profusely, wiping his nearly bald head with his handkerchief as he entered. Hey, judge, 
Nicole stood from the table and waved casually. Hi, Nicole, he replied with boisterous robustness. And where have you been? She said accusingly, in much the same way she had to Thierry upon his entrance earlier. Sweetie, I was here for lunch yesterday. But no breakfast today. Sweetheart, I love your daddy's cooking and all, but do I have to eat here three times a day? No, she half yelled back, then looked down at Thierry with a quick smile and then replied to the judge in a lower tone of voice, just two times, we're closed for dinner. After a quick laugh, the judge greeted Thierry warmly and plopped down heavily in his chair at the table. Nicole greeted another set of patrons entering and seated them in the far corner. She's a piece of work, huh? The judge joked in his thick Georgia accent. Yes, yes, she is. And how are you, my friend? Oh, I'm great. Me and Mabel are busy, busy, but doing great. Busy, that's good, right? It's better than being dead, the judge joked loudly. The newest patrons glanced over quickly from the far corner. So what's been keeping you so busy? The grandkids were in from Atlanta a couple weeks ago, and Mabel's been keeping me running with helping her peck out wallpaper and staying for refinishing the floors, and, oh, God, I love her to death, but that woman takes forever to make a decision. Just then, Nicole came back to their table and took their lunch orders. And how was court this morning? Thierry inquired of his friend. Oh, God, don't get me started, the judge replied in an exasperated tone. The old man kicks a bucket, his will been sealed up in a safe behind an old Gifford painting or something like it. The new wife, the 25-year-old, wants all of it. The old wife, the 65-year-old he left for the young one two years ago, wants all of it too. His four kids want it all too. So the will gets unsealed and the creditors start pouring in and instead of a couple mills sitting in the bank, there's a hundred grand in some life insurance policy that was taken out by one of his other wives who's been dead for ten years and there's no living beneficiary listed. And so now everyone is still alive is clamoring over that. Awful. It's just awful how Ken can treat each other in such a way. And all over money. Nobody even cares to remember the old man. Well, after all, it's probably for the best. What a pompous asshole he was. Thierry laughed at the sheer ridiculousness of it all. And even though he didn't know the family involved, he had known enough human beings to get the picture. If I could find a way, I'd make sure nobody got a damn cent. And I wouldn't care if it hair-lipped every one of them. I can't say I blame you, Thierry said quietly. Who was he anyway? Nobody, a total nobody, the judge replied seriously. Just a brat that come from old money. His daddy owned a half million acres of farmland that had been passed down from his great-great-granddaddy, or something like it, I reckon. And his son sold most of it off for pennies on the dollar just to get rid of it. Lived in that big house on Carter Avenue off Division. You know the one. Sat up real high and overlooked the river. Thierry nodded in affirmation. Yeah, I know it. Well, he let it go to hell in a handbasket. Place looks like shit now. What a shame, Terry said in genuine sorrow. It's a damn shame. But hey, come to think of it, the land you got from old J.C., well, he bought from this old man. There's still probably another couple hundred acres to touch your property, if you're interested. You can probably get it cheap from whoever ends up with it, if you make him a cash offer. It ain't nothing but fields and woods, but it's awful pretty land. Well, I appreciate the notice, but I don't know if I'm in a position to buy more acreage right now. Well, I understand completely. Hell, who is nowadays? I just wanted to make sure you knew about it, that's all. Certainly appreciated, my friend, Thierry replied sincerely. Change your mind, you let me know, okay? Thierry nodded thoughtfully. 
The two old friends ate, talked about the weather and Mabel's plans for the renovation of several of the judges' rooms, and ended their lunch with a warm handshake and the mutual promise to get together again soon. They left Nicole a nice tip and headed out, Terry to the grocery store, the judge back to the courthouse. Terry cruised the aisles of what was still, at that point, a mom-and-pop grocery store and ran into several people he knew. There were polite exchanges, smiles and nods, and even several affectionate hugs and handshakes. At the checkout counter, he ran into Adam Buford, a young man of about 30 with Down syndrome. He had worked at the grocery store for more than 10 years as a bag boy and was also well-liked, well-respected, and well-known by those who habitually shopped there. Adam's father, Chester Buford, operated a machine shop that Thierry, in his auto repair business, had patronized for more than a decade. The two men had built quite the business relationship over the years and had also developed quite the friendship. Chester and his wife Abigail adopted Adam when he was a toddler, knowing full well the challenges they would face as a family, and as a result, Terry had always thought very highly of them. Terry paid with cash for his groceries, as people did back in those days, and began to load the last of his bags into his cart with Adam's help. Hey, Mr. Terry, Adam said excitedly. Well, hello, my old friend, Terry replied warmly. How have you been? Good, Mr. Terry, real good. Well, that's good to hear, Adam. Anything in particular that has you in such a good mood? Maybe a new girlfriend? Adam laughed nervously and waved his hand at Terry to dismiss such a silly accusation. My dad said he was going to take me camping next weekend. He said we were going to go fishing and sleep outside. That's great, Adam. Have you ever been camping before? Oh, lots, Mr. Terry, but not in a real long time. I think I'm going to catch the biggest fish I ever caught before. Oh, really? What makes you think that? My dad said he was going to give me some new lures that were going to work better than the old ones I got. That's great, Adam, Thierry replied while quietly reaching in his pocket. Well, it was good seeing you, and I've got to get these home before they rot, but please say hi to your dad for me, okay? I sure will, Mr. Terry. With that, Terry shook the young man's hand, leaving in it a folded $20 bill. Adam stared down at the money at first as if he'd had no idea how it got there but then looked up quickly as Terry walked away, pushing his grocery cart through the automatic doors at the exit. Adam suddenly ran after him and took him by the arm. Is this for me, Mr. Terry? He asked bewilderedly. It sure is, my friend. Adam swallowed hard while looking for the money in his hand to Terry and back quickly. But what for? For some extra lures. If you're going to catch the biggest fish you've ever caught, you're going to need plenty of good lures. Thanks, Mr. Terry. I promise I'll bring you a picture of the fish I catch. Do that, Adam. I'll be excited to see it. With that, Adam abruptly hugged Terry in what can only be described as a bear hug and didn't release him for a full ten seconds. The two men said goodbye again, thanked each other again, shook hands again, and then parted ways again. Terry back to his truck in the parking lot and Adam back inside to his work. The young man would spend the rest of the day thinking about the lures he would buy with the money Terry gave him, and needless to say, there would be a smile plastered on his face until he went to bed that night. September 4th, 1990 Adam had inspired him. Terry was up before the night ended. He poured some coffee into a thermos and left food on the porch for Duke, who had not yet emerged from his hunt. Terry ate a handful of berries, woke useless with a quick whistle, grabbed his fishing gear, and began walking through the dense woods which surrounded his home toward the river. The loyal dog followed after him sleepily. 
He passed the old barn on his right and followed his usual path toward his favorite fishing spot. The path itself could hardly be considered a path, as it had only been roughly worn through his years of following the same steps through the brush. It was not uncommon for him to come across a herd of deer who would quickly scamper off. Useless had learned not to make a fuss after them. In fact, he hardly ever barked. This was in part because his owner disliked incessant barking. It was also due to the fact that the first few times the dog tried to chase the deer, he returned, panting, to Terry's heel after about 30 seconds, wearing a look on his face that said, Wow, they're really fast. Cracks of low sunlight began to stream through tree limbs as he approached his spot along the riverbank. The water, crystal clear, was low for the time of year, but still sparkled. The man poured some coffee and then breathed in the isolation and the beauty around him. After an hour or so and no luck, a branch snapped close by. Useless shot up at the same time Terry instinctively put his hand on his pistol. Steps coming closer and closer from the east. Rhythmic, steady, heavy. Definitely not deer. Terry squinted in the distance and Useless began to silently bare his upper teeth. The man was able to make out the lower half of a human, which made him half relieved, half anxious at the approach. It was not often Terry ran into another soul in this place. Not willing to give up the element of surprise in the unlikely event that this person wanted trouble, Terry waited silently, peering intently as the person moved closer. When the person finally cleared through the bush where Terry could see his face, he instantly recognized Nate Hendricks, the son of Wilson Hendricks, who had purchased Terry's business upon his retirement. Nate, he called out. The young man grabbed his chest in surprise and then squinted to see who had called him. Oh, hey, Mr. Terry, you scared the devil out of me, the young man panted as he approached. The same could just about be said here, Terry laughed. I know this is kind of close to your place, but I didn't ever expect to see someone out here this early. Neither did I, Terry said, extending his hand as Nate walked toward him. What are you doing out here? The young man paused for a moment. Just walking, I guess. Terry looked at him with slight bewilderment. Nate, you gotta be six miles from home. How long have you been walking? What time is it now? Terry glanced at his watch. About 6.30. Nate wiped his glistening forehead with the palm of his hand. About four hours, then. Four hours? Nate, were you lost? No, sir. I didn't think so. Terry replied with a smile. So why are you all the way out here at such a time? Just thinking, I guess. Anything in particular? Well, he hesitated. I've got a girl on my mind. The old man nodded and smiled. That's a reason to be walking in the woods all night. I've done it myself. Nate smiled a bit nervously. Who is she, if you don't mind me asking? The young man stayed silent for a minute, thinking through his words before he said them. You know her. I do. It's Nicole Burns. Terry subconsciously ran his tongue over the scar on his lower lip when he heard her name. I see. Well, Mr. Terry, I know this sounds crazy, because I'm only 19 and all, but I think I love her. Terry thought quickly back to his conversation with Nicole the day before and felt slightly saddened for Nate. Did he have a clue about Kevin? Why is that crazy? Terry asked. The young man shrugged. Because I've heard people say you can't really fall in love so young, but... Truth is, I've loved her for years now. 
Terry was a bit surprised to hear such a confident declaration from a young man who wouldn't normally display such emotion. Why are you walking in the woods just now, then? Because I think she might be in trouble. Trouble? He asked nervously. What kind of trouble? She started seeing this guy named Kevin. So he did have a clue about Kevin. And he's just no good for her, Nate continued on. Sure, he's a jock, and he's popular and all, and I just, I'm... Terry thought he might probe Nate's motives. Jealous? Nate looked up sharply and shook his head firmly. No, I'm not jealous, he said with certainty. I'm worried about her. After a moment of silence, Terry pressed. Are you going to tell me why you're worried? You see, Kevin, well, he has a certain reputation around school, but it's hard to put into words. It's more than that. I don't think he means any good by her. In fact, I'm sure of it. Terry watched as the look of concern on Nate's face morphed into anger. He's really only after one thing, and he'll do anything to get it. Lie, cheat, break her heart. Now hold on a minute, Terry interrupted with a wave of his hand. Just how well do you know this Kevin fella? Not very well, Nate shrugged. I've watched him play ball a few times. And was there anything in his play on the football field that would indicate that he's a vile person? Nate shook his head. But I have run into him a few times over the weekends. Terry raised his eyebrows quizzically. Same question, he said. Nate hesitated and was starting to get upset. No, nothing in particular, but Mr. Terry, I know that kind of guy. Deep down in my gut, there's just something not right about him. Terry put up both hands to let Nate know he was backing off that line of interrogation. Is he a violent person? He might have been in a fight or two, but nothing more than what jocks get into here and there. Then your concern is not with Kevin. Nate gave a quizzical glance. Terry shrugged his shoulders. Your concern is with Nicole. Wait a second. What do you mean by that? Nate blurted in a halfway accusatory tone. Logic, my boy, logic, Terry answered. If you're worried about Nicole, but have no reason to believe Kevin to be the cause of harm, then you must believe that she is capable of harming herself. The young man shook his head as if the words were echoing around inside it. Let me ask you this. Terry continued. Is she a virtuous girl? Of course she is, he answered defensively. She's an angel. From what I know of her, I would tend to agree with you. After processing for a moment, Nate quickly asked, So what's your point? The point is that if Nicole is virtuous and Kevin is no fiend, you have nothing to fret about. The young man nodded silently. He looked pitifully unconvinced. Nate... Terry began in a comforting tone. I know what you're going through. May I give you a couple pieces of advice from a friend to a friend? First, don't worry about her. She's a big girl with a good head on her shoulders and a good upbringing. Second, and I know this will be hard to hear, but there are other fish in the sea. Nate rolled his eyes in despair upon hearing those words. Terry put his hand on the young man's shoulder. It's true, he said gently. You're a young man with a lot going for you and there are plenty of other young fish with big hair and silly makeup in the sea. The young man looked back down at his shoes and laughed under his breath. And one more thing, Terry said as Nate lifted his eyes again. If you really love her? I do, Nate interjected passionately. I really do. Okay, okay, Terry said. If you really love her, you'll be there for her when she needs a friend, and for no other reason 
but that she needs a friend. Nate sighed loudly and nodded in agreement. You're a pretty good person to know, Mr. Terry. I'm glad I ran into you like this, he said genuinely, extending his hand, which Thierry warmly shook. Well, thank you, and you're a good kid. Keep your head up, okay? Nate nodded and then started to walk home. Thierry sat and thought for a while. At one point, Useless got up and moved to the bank of the river. He lapped the cool, clean water for what must have been five whole minutes. It is getting warm, the man thought to himself. Well, my friend, he said to the dog, what do you say we pack it up and get something to eat? Thierry gathered his fishing gear and thought for a moment how disappointing it was to have not caught anything, but was also thankful for running into Nate in such a way. He thought about how hard it would be to take his own advice. He couldn't help but feel worried about Nicole, and he didn't even know why. Perhaps it was because he had had such a special bond with her since she was a small girl. But now that he was retired and not in town six days per week, felt like that had faded. Maybe it was because she was growing up and he was nervous about letting her go. Letting her go? He laughed to himself. What control had he ever had over her? He had always tried to be a mentor, tried to be someone she could count on, and he had done well on that account, but she wasn't his child to raise, nor was she his daughter to set free. She was her own woman and would make her own choices. There was nothing he could do but be there if she ever needed him. Oddly enough, Nate's inner monologue followed much the same stream of thought. He tossed his keys down on the kitchen table covered in the checkerboard tablecloth and poured some water in one bowl and dog food in the other for useless. The man patted his canine friend gently on the head and said, Good boy. The dog was patient enough to briefly show that he appreciated the affection, but not patient enough to let it keep him from eating. Terry glanced up and noticed the light flashing on his answering machine on the counter. He poured himself a glass of cold water and then strolled over to listen to the message. At first, the static was so bad that Terry thought the person calling must have had a bad connection. He was about to erase the message when he heard a distinct voice cursing in the background. Every muscle in his body froze. He hadn't heard that voice in at least 15 years. Static continued, then the sound of a whistle, then people talking in the background. Then there was that voice again. Hello? Hello? It shouted angrily. Terry? Terry? Pick up the damn phone! More static, more commotion. Terry suddenly felt sick. It's your brother Marty, said the old voice in a thick New York accent. Listen, I'm gonna be down in your neck of the woods and was hoping, damn it, hey, leave that right there. Don't you touch it. Feeling as if his knees were about to give out, Terry collapsed into his chair. Sorry. The voice on the answering machine continued. But look, I'd like to see if... Inaudible. And that's about it. I'll try to ring you again when I get in. More static, more commotion. Then the long dial tone. Finally, there was silence. Thierry sat stunned, as if he had been punched in the gut. He covered his mouth with both hands and his eyes watered. He then stood up quickly and erased the message. He didn't want to hear that voice again. In fact... He didn't even want to hear the phone ring, knowing that Marty would try to call again. He calmly took it off the hook and placed the headset on the counter. He sat in his library for hours, gently swiveling back and forth behind the desk. He tried to figure out why his brother would want to see him now, after all these years. He couldn't bear the thought of laying eyes on him. As if snapping out of a trance, he suddenly realized that he was sitting in the dark. He flipped the desk lamp on and checked his watch. 9.22 p.m. He turned the light back off and went into the kitchen. 
The old man was hungry, and he hadn't really eaten at all that day, but was more nervous about eating something and immediately throwing it back up. He double-checked the locks and the doors and headed up to bed. The dream that haunted him every night returned, but this time with a twist. He was not standing on the precipice this time. He was cautiously balanced on jagged rocks. He strained his eyes to the sea to catch a glimpse of his love, but she was not there. He strained his ears for her gentle voice, but only heard the waves savagely crashing against the rocks. He turned to his right to find her, but she was not there. He turned to his left, and far off in the distance, he could see a white dress billowing in the violent wind. He couldn't run to her because of the waves and the rocks, but he began a steady, frantic dash along the slippery surfaces. Several times he slipped and felt his ribs burn with pain as he crashed down on the hard rocks. He lifted himself up despite the pain. He could not abandon his love in the hour of her need. He trudged on, only to slip again. After what seemed like an eternity, out of breath and staggering from the intense pain, he came upon her. She was lying across several large boulders, on her back as angry waves crashed all around. He slid across the platform of one rock on his knees and took her hand in his. He kissed it rapturously over and over, her fingers, her palm, her wrist, her forearm. And then, in a moment of clarity, he realized she was cold. He held her beautiful arm, limp and stiff in his hands, and stared at it in shock for a moment. He then turned his eyes to her face and, to his horror, saw it badly bruised, blood pooled behind her glassy eyes. His senses racing back to him, he, for the first time, noticed the unnatural position of her body upon the rocks. He slid his hand under her head to caress it, only to feel the contents of her skull leaking out in his steady stream. He recoiled in horror and slipped off the wet surface of the crag. He fell to a rock four feet below and saw stars for a moment, then felt in full force the dull pain where the back of his head hit the surface below. He simply laid there, staring up at the cliffs above, some forty or fifty feet up, his usual vantage point during the stream. He found himself asking, why is this dream so different, so violent? As his vision slowly came back into focus, he noticed the figure of a young man standing on the cliff, peering down below. At first, he thought he might be looking at an apparition of himself. He sat up and strained his eyes. A huge wave suddenly roared over his head, and he awoke, sitting straight up in bed and covered in sweat. But in the split second before the dream was over, he recognized the young man atop the cliff, staring down at the broken, beaten love of his life. It was his brother, Marty. September 6th, 1990. Thierry sipped his coffee and stared out over the field that dissolved into black woods to the north. The air was stifling, and not a star could be seen above. Crickets and tree frogs churred the monotonously relentless songs. Even in the oppressive humidity, Thierry shivered under his blanket. He thought he might be getting the flu. He watched Duke trot from the woods blissfully, the success of his hunt obvious in the felicity of his step. The dexterous cat ducked inside the screen and leapt gracefully on the empty chair beside him. Terry mindlessly stroked his head. Duke's raucous purring nearly drowned out the song of the insects and amphibians. The man dreaded the idea of speaking with Marty, but as the sun came up, he started to realize that he was under no obligation to speak to his brother. After all, it had already been more than a decade since he'd heard from him. In fact, if it wasn't for the occasional newspaper article featuring a quote or a photo of his Wall Street superbroker brother, he wouldn't have even known if he was dead or alive. Beams of light began to peek through the dense trees and Terry began to feel better. 
He, after all, didn't care if Marty wanted to speak to him. He did not want to speak to Marty. His spirit revived. Terry realized how hungry he was. He hadn't eaten in nearly 24 hours. He had breakfast and then walked his beaten driveway to get the daily newspaper. The cracks of sunlight earlier visible were again overtaken by clouds and the sky turned various shades of gray without raining. Once back inside, he grabbed another cup of coffee and sat again on the back porch, newspaper in hand. Sports first, as usual. The Yankees won. A narrow 2-1 victory over the mediocre California Angels would not, however, salvage their dismal season. He shook his head, remembering the glory days and wondering if, in the modern era of free agency, expansion, financial considerations, his team would ever dominate as they once had. With a disappointed sigh, he flipped back to the front page. Saddam Hussein urges Arabs to rise up against Western powers. I don't think that will end well for him, thought the old man as he continued skimming from article to article. Bob Newhart turned 61. This brought a smile to his face. It also made him feel old. Wall Street firm executive declares bankruptcy. Page C5. Terry licked his pointer finger and flipped to C5 to begin reading. Investment firm Graham Bates and Lieberman CFO Martin LaRoque has been relieved of his position at the firm just one day after filing for bankruptcy in federal court. Terry put the paper down in shock. This was impossible. His brother Marty had an enormous fortune and was lauded as one of the top financial and investment minds in the world. How did this happen? The article went on without much detail at all, simply stating that Mr. LaRoque took a leave of absence back in July for undisclosed personal reasons. It went on with a long statement from Colin Graham, chairman of the board, that Mr. LaRoque's personal financial instability in no way affected the company's well-being, nor did it affect the security of the company's many investors. Graham continued, Our clients and the general public should have no apprehensions about this situation, as it has been appropriately handled internally and is completely contained to Mr. LaRoque's personal circumstances. We wish Mr. LaRoque the best success in all of his future endeavors. He put the paper down again and gazed at the tips of gray clouds as they floated by, the low roll of thunder humming in the distance. He couldn't believe what he'd read and was certain that this had something to do with the phone call he'd received out of the blue the previous day. He was selfishly interested to learn what had happened to his brother, but he had never been more disinterested to get involved in the situation. He did, however, decide that it was pointless to leave the phone off the hook indefinitely. He walked to the kitchen and picked the handset up. He could hear the dull beep-beep-beep tone that was meant to alert him that the phone was off the hook. He gently placed the handset back on the holder, hanging on the wall beside him. At that moment, Terry was startled by frenzied barking in the front room. Useless! This usually hushed the dog immediately, but he continued barking ferociously. Useless! He yelled again as he walked into the living room. At that moment, he saw a shadow pass over the glass, covered by a sheer white curtain on the front door. He stood frozen there for a minute as the dog kept barking. The shadow reappeared and grew larger and larger in the window. Then it stopped growing, and a loud knock made Terry's heart skip a beat. His innate reaction was to put his hand on his pistol again, but then he calmed himself and barked it useless to be quiet. The dog listened this time. As he approached the door, the man outside knocked again loudly and impatiently. Terry's worst fear was confirmed when he peeled the curtain back to see his brother Marty, much older and weaker than he remembered him, standing outside. He closed his eyes for a moment and then unlocked and opened the door. 
Useless grew impatient and stood up. He growled ever so slightly, and his top teeth became visible again. Library. With a stern snap and point to the man's finger, the dog obeyed, albeit only begrudgingly. He would keep a watchful eye on his owner from the library door. Well, aren't you going to let me in? Asked Marty impatiently. A screen door, which was also locked, was all that stood between the two men. Why should I? Asked Thierry quietly. Why should you? Marty replied incredulously. Because I'm your brother, for God's sake, and I've come all the way to this godforsaken wilderness to see you. He said in an agitated tone, looking quickly to his left and his right as if to illustrate his point. Thierry stood stoically. And I'm soaking wet, Marty added. And for the love of God, how long did your driveway have to be? It took my driver almost an hour to even find it, and by the time he did, that stinky kebab was too frustrated to even drive me down it. So I walked, I walked, in my condition, in the pouring rain. Look at me. He held up his foot so Thierry could see his shoes. These are $600 shoes, Italian leather, covered in mud. My socks are soaked through. I swear to God, I'm going to catch pneumonia in the middle of the goddamn summer coming to a place like this. I didn't ask you to come here, Terry curtly replied. For God's sake, Terry, I'm your older brother. You haven't spoken to me in at least 15 years. You're right, and with good reason. With good reason? With what reason? Marty asked, his tone becoming more incredulous as he spoke. You're going to let something that happened 45 years ago, you're going to let that invented offense from a bygone era keep you from inviting your own flesh and blood into your home? You're right. I don't want you in my home. In fact, I don't even want you on my land. Oh, sure, right. Marty carried on in his thick Manhattan accent, waving his arms around sarcastically. Your precious land. It's a backcountry swamp, Thierry. The only good it'd do would be if you logged it, and I doubt you've even thought about your ROI on that. Terry stood silently, his eyes red with malice. But no, of course you hadn't thought of that, Marty continued condescendingly. You were never one for business, you know that? You had a sharp mind, but instead of doing something useful with it, you filled it with delusions of God knows what and revenge for an offense that never happened, daydreams and nightmares about a life gone by. You could have done something for yourself, you know? You could have made some real money and actually accomplished something if you'd just gotten control over your own emotions. You're not Edmond Dantes, for God's sake. Whatever Chateau Diff you've been living in is of your own making. The two stood in deafening silence for a moment, rain pounding the roof over the front porch, until Thierry flatly said, Is that all? What do you mean, is that all? Aren't you gonna let me in? Thierry laughed out of disbelief and slowly closed the door in his face. Oh, come on, Thierry! Marty yelled from behind the door. Your own flesh and blood. You gonna let your own brother die out here in the elements? In the elements, thought Thierry, walking back to the kitchen. He always had a flair for the dramatic. Upon seeing Thierry leave the room, Useless returned to his post by the front door and began growling again. Thierry let him be. I'm not leaving, Thierry, hollered Marty. You can either let me in or carry my stiff corpse off in a body bag. The low temperature that night was 76 degrees, cloudy and humid. Marty slept on the rocker on the porch, stripped out of his wet clothes to his undershirt and shorts. For the first night in years, Thierry didn't dream. September 7th, 1990. He stared up at his ceiling fan, whirling round and round. 
He went through his usual ritual, brushing his teeth, shaving, and dressing, and then walked slowly downstairs, the bottom landing putting him just two feet from the front door. He thought to himself that if Marty was still out there, he would have to let him in. The old man bit the inside of his cheek at the thought. He looked down and noticed Useless still standing guard by the door. It was then that he was sure his brother was still on the porch. Terry calmly ordered the dog to the library with a click of his tongue and then unlocked and opened the wood door and the screen door behind it. Marty was sleeping, halfway hanging out of the wood rocker. It was then that Terry saw how bad his brother looked. He'd always remembered him so strong, fit, and young. Terry noticed the sunspots all over Marty's hands, the thin hairs on his wrinkled arms, and the dark, heavy bags beneath his eyes. Marty's hair was white and thin. His collarbone poked through his gaunt skin. His breathing was labored and hard. It had been at least a few days since he'd shaved. Terry made the sound of clearing his throat. When Marty didn't respond, he did it louder. Marty stirred this time and opened one eye. When he saw his younger brother, he sat up and, with some effort, straightened himself in the chair. He then coughed loudly and then coughed again from deep in his chest. His whole fragile body shook. Jesus, Terry, Marty said, looking back up at his brother. Was this some kind of sick joke? Was that some kind of punishment? You want some breakfast? He asked with a degree of kindness he had not hitherto been able to muster. Hell yes. It's been a day and a half since I've eaten anything at all. He got to his feet with some effort, a hard cough racking his body as he did. Well then, come in, Thierry said, holding the screen door open with his back. Marty collected his coat, pants, shoes, and socks. He grabbed his suitcase and walked toward the door. You're not going to let that dog attack me, are you? Thierry shook his head. Yeah, well, I got to take a piss and get a shower, he said as soon as he'd entered in the house. Upstairs, hang a right, soap and a fresh towel in the closet. Yeah, thank you, Marty said gruffly. Can I get a shave, too? Razor and shave and cream in the medicine cabinet. Marty nodded his head and trudged up the stairs. Terry heard him cough again when he reached the landing. A few minutes later, Marty came back downstairs, his hair still damp from the shower, but combed and found his way into the kitchen. Terry motioned him to sit at the table and then brought out a plate of piping hot eggs, sausage, and fresh berries. Coffee, Terry asked. Uh, yeah, thank you. Cream, sugar? Both, Marty replied, grabbing his fork and plunging right in. Terry sat down across the table and watched his brother eat ravenously. He felt complete and total disdain for him, but at the same time felt sorry for him, for his age, for how bad he looked, and for what was in the paper yesterday. So what happened to the money? Terry asked after a couple minutes. What kind of sausage is this? country sausage. Are you trying to kill me or something? It's hot as hell. Water? Terry asked, somewhat sarcastically. Marty just shook his head quickly. You want to know about the money, huh? He asked, wiping his lips quickly with his napkin. You read about it in the paper? Terry nodded. Huh, <laughs> grunted Marty. Then that should be all you need to know. That's not the first time you've told me that. Marty locked eyes with his younger brother then quickly glanced away. So you don't want to talk about it? Talk about it? What is there to talk about? It's gone. It's all gone. Along with the place on the Upper West Side, the yacht, and Carmen. Who is Carmen? Who is Carmen? She was my wife. Your wife? What happened to Susan? 
Oh, that bitch is long gone. When did that happen? Marty closed one eye and looked toward the ceiling with the other, as if doing some sort of mathematical calculation. We've been divorced for about 14 years. Well, I'm sorry to hear that, replied Terry. Eh, don't be, Marty said with a wave of his hand. She'd been on my nerves for a while, and it all worked out, though. She got her money, and I got Mary. Mary? Yeah, answered Marty, my third wife. Terry laughed in disbelief. How long did she stick around? About eight months. And then came Carmen, Terry said dryly. Oh, no, there was Monica in between. Monica? My God, Marty, how many times have you been married? He leaned towards his plate to shovel some eggs in his mouth. Just six, he answered through his food. Oh, just six, Thierry repeated. Yeah, but I tell you what, Marty continued while swallowing. Losing Carmen's the one that's hurt the most, by far. Why, because you got the rest of your money? Money? No, stupid, Marty replied condescendingly. That little bitch was dumb enough to sign a prenup. Plus, as you read, it's all gone anyway. Nah, I'm upset about losing her because she's only 19. 19? Yeah, said Marty with a loud laugh. And it's always been my dream to die in the arms of a 19-year-old. He then coughed so hard that some bits of egg flew back out onto the table. God, Terry, he said. You should see her. She's about 5'11", a buck 25. I don't care, interrupted the younger brother. That's only because you haven't seen her. And what about Vivian? What about her? You ever hear from her? Terry asked. No, do you? Terry shook his head. Are you finished eating? Yeah, I'm done. And get your things together, Terry said abruptly, picking the dishes up off the table and placing them in the sink. What do you mean? Asked Marty. I said get your things together. We're going to the airport. Just like that? He asked scoffingly. Yeah, Terry answered. You said you wanted to see me. You wanted to be in my house. Well, you've done both, and now it's time for you to leave. I don't have anywhere to be. Well, you can't be here, that's for sure. Let's get you on the first flight back to New York, and then at least I can pretend this never happened. No, Terry, said Marty meekly. I mean, I don't have anywhere to go. Terry turned and looked his older brother in the eyes. Marty's eyes were weak and almost moist, but Terry's hurt and anger were brimming over. I don't care, he said harshly. Your own brother? And you don't care, Marty said with a shrug of his shoulders. I'm not responsible for you, your wives, your money, or your well-being. I said I'd take you to the airport, and believe me, with the way I feel about you, that's awfully generous of me. Well then, how do you feel about me? Marty asked, getting slightly riled up. I hate you, answered Terry without any hesitation. I hate you for being the cause of the vast majority of all the pain of my life. You destroyed whatever chance of happiness there was for me in the world. Oh, sure. It's still my fault. It wasn't not having a father or a mom dying. It wasn't the depression or the war or being homeless and poor or anything you might have done, huh? It was all my fault. Don't change the subject. You know exactly what I'm talking about, Thierry said, raising his voice for the first time. Useless came trotting into the room upon hearing it. Yeah, I do, Thierry, and I wish you could let it go, yelled Marty, slamming his fist on the table. Useless barked loudly. Out, Terry yelled at the dog, who quickly turned tail. It's been 45 years, Terry, Marty continued desperately. 
and those have been the worst 45 years of my life. How many times do I have to tell you that I had nothing to do with it? How many times did you read the police reports? How many hours did you spend combing through the newspapers? Not only was there no evidence of any kind against me, but on top of it, you won't take your own brother's word because you've got some kind of a sick hunch. The reason there's no evidence, Thierry replied accusingly, is that your people, who would cheat, rob, and murder to keep one of their own out of trouble, did just that. Damn it, Thierry. You're accusing people you've never even met, good people, of a serious crime that you have no proof of. How many people would you implicate in your insane conspiracy theory? And for that sick hunch you're going to forsake your own brother, who loves you? You're damn right I will, Marty, answered Terry coldly. And that's some sick brand of love you peddle. Marty shrugged. There's no way that I can prove to you that it was an accident, is there, Terry? He asked softly. Terry bit both his lips and shook his head. How are you going to stand before God one day with brazen hatred in your heart? The two men locked eyes and then looked away, Marty to the floor and Terry to the ceiling. You lost hope, Terry, Marty said softly, and you made a choice in your heart that you wanted to lose me too. After a couple moments of silence and heavy breath, Marty said, I'm sick, little brother. What do you mean? I've got cancer, lungs, liver, pancreas, you name it. Doc says I've only got a few weeks to live. I'm sorry to hear that said Terry with as much sympathy as he could muster. What are you going to do? He said with a forced laugh. Is that why Carmen left you? Asked Terry. Isn't that sensitive? But no, she didn't even know about the cancer. She left because of the money. She's calling Graham's side job at present, among others. Well, again, I'm sorry about your problems. Problems? Losing everything? Having the woman of your dreams walk out on you and cancer? Those are just problems to you? Kind of like your car won't start or you got gum on your shoe? How about your only brother hates you? Does that qualify as a problem? Terry remained silent. Well, what are we going to do? In light of my present condition, are we going to let bygones be bygones and patch things up? The younger one tried to hold back another rush of moisture in his eyes. We're the only family we got, kid. You're the only person I've got to turn to. What do you say? Terry watched his older brother's eyes for a long moment. I said, get your things. We're going to the airport. My name is Edison McDaniels, and you're listening to Surgical Fiction, creative tales of inspiration, cunning, awe, and terror inspired by my life as a brain surgeon. Not one among them all that touched the matriarch of ruins, juicing out the blade man, the cadaver of Gideon Cathcart. Maybe ten minutes, he'll be dead in five. Slowly, inexorably, the skull had become a part of him. Like an extra Jimmy P was bleeding out, growth. moving ever closer. The evening of the second day of battle, I couldn't hospital. have seen a whore and a line of priests that so bad outside. Was he was as good as they man. came once the blade parted. Do you have any idea what it feels like to be buried? The surgical task and the writing craft are both goal-directed, cerebral undertakings. 
But surgery is a left brain, concrete, right now thing. And writing is a right brain, creative, take your time thing. Surgery requires a rote knowledge of anatomy. Writing calls up an esoteric awareness of words and grammar. Surgery is relatively quick and mentally and often physically exhausting. Writing is time-consuming and brain-building. Surgery is a team sport. No surgeon operates alone. Writing may be one of the most solitary things we humans do. And, for me at least, it is also one of the most rewarding.